Our scripture this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, 25 through 27. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. If you've got your Bibles, church, please open them up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I don't know that I have prepared longer or with more trepidation than I have the next two lessons on what the Scripture says about elders. Where you are in your life for the moment may deem this not very significant. You know what? I get that. But I'm telling you, for me, it's huge. And I, I, Don's just not trying to be uh, exaggerative when he was saying a few moments ago, God is leading and moving this church in ways that we haven't yet seen. We just haven't. We've been praying for that. Every one of us knows that change is necessary for anything that's growing. And God, by His grace, is going to change and mold and shape us even further into His image than we've ever experienced before. And it's going to take some men who know God to help lead us there. The direction our elders have set before us is a specific mission. That is to lead ordinary people into an extraordinary relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to need some men who will come alongside, who will help breathe life and air and fire into that vision. If we don't, we'll fall back. We won't move ahead. Someone once said a church cannot outgrow its leaders. I don't know who said that, but I wrote it down in my journal. And I've watched it unfold over the last 37 years. A church cannot outgrow its leaders. And so a church has to be led by people who are being led by God in order for us to arrive deeper and further and wider into God than we ever imagined possible. The scripture says it this way. Without vision, people perish. That's where leadership starts. It starts with seeing something that doesn't exist to lead a people there that they didn't think they could get to. I would add, without Jesus and a centering in the Word and a leading of the Spirit, the church would perish. That would be my New Testament version of that Old Testament passage. I think that's why God has led us to a study of 1 John. I don't take credit for that at all. God saw this coming with our preparing to ordain new elders. And I especially don't see last week's message as any accident at all. We talked about God's love language being love. Almost because God can't help himself. That's all he can speak is love. That's his language. And he expects his church to speak that same language. Because very simply in a nutshell, John told us last week, God is, finish it for me, love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. That's who he is. Greater than his might, deeper than his creativity, is one all-consuming characteristic, and it's love. Water can't help but be wet. A fire can't help but be hot. You can't take the wet out of water and still have water. You can't take the heat out of fire and still have fire. In the same way, you can't take the love out of the one who lived before time and still have him exist. Because he was and is and always will be one word. Say it with me. Probe deep within him, explore every corner about him, and love's all you're going to find. 
Go to the beginning of every decision he's made and go to the end of every story he's told and you're going to see God is love. And if that's true, then our call to leaders for his church, a church that's supposed to be molding and shaping, I love the word better, transforming ordinary people into extraordinary relationship grounded people. Those leaders have to be loving people because, again, that's who he is. This morning, after I share with you some scriptures that I think make it clear elders are not optional equipment, not if you respect the word of God, and it's leadership to help inform not just our ears of God's story, but help us synchronize our stories with his. If you believe that's true, then I think you're going to hear this morning from the scriptures, elders are not optional equipment. But after I do that, I want to point you to a picture that I think illustrates the kind of men we're looking for to acknowledge as leaders for this particular church here at KCC. I'm going to come back to that picture in just a minute, but some of you may be asking this question. Why in the world do we need them? We have a preacher. I don't mean that as a joke, because for some churches, they're attempting to be the church with just a preacher that he is the elder, he's the pastor, and everyone else pretty much falls in behind his leadership. Well, I think leaders are important. Can you think of a successful sports team without a coach? Can you think of a successful school without an administrator or a principal? Can you think of a successful army without a general or a successful home without a parent or a guardian? I can't. Now, I can think of a school or a team or an army or a home that's existing, but I can't think of a single one that is flourishing and thriving without quality leaders. I think the case could be made that human beings were created, listen to me, to be led. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that leadership is absolutely essential to one of our mission steps, leading a life that's, that's absolutely full. Why do I say that? Because of Jesus. Jesus himself. Jesus, who was God stepping into human flesh and walking among us for a while, God himself, when he does that, needed to be led. Listen to what John says in John chapter 5 and verse 19. I tell you the truth, these are Jesus' words. The Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does underscore this even Jesus needed to be led I guess that means I do too I know I do so since the beginning of time scripture records God has used listen to me elders as a part of his leadership team who were they they were adult men usually older who were responsible for making decisions in almost any local or village any mo any local village or community now, I, I kind of hesitated there because I, I don't want to just lead you to the belief that this is something that's just Hebraic. I mean that in ancient times, elders were usually older men responsible for making decisions in any local village or any community. Now, while the term elder could simply refer to someone who's older, and it does in Genesis chapter 10, verse 21, most often it's a reference to or an allusion to men who led in local decision-making. Now let's talk about the Old Testament for a minute. The Old Testament reveals that before Israel was ruled by kings and even after that became their norm, elders were a necessity to God leading his people. Let me give you some examples. First, let's start with the word for elders. The Hebrew word for elders is beard. <laughs> I did not know that before this week, but I got to tell you, I kind of like it. 
but I digress. We see the first example of elders as a community of leaders in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 7. The Bible says, So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, notice the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Notice the elders were the leaders who represented the families and community at Jacob's funeral, both of Pharaoh's family and also Israel's families. Then in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 16, Moses is told to first go inform the elders of Israel about my plan to lead them out of Egyptian bondage so that they can then pass that plan on. Here's what he actually says. He says, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob appeared to me. Moses did that. And then he went on to unfold exactly how this escape from bondage was going to take place. But it was through the elders that God spoke and was relaying his intentions for how he was going to act later. Now in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 21, Moses calls the elders together and he communicates to them first what the commandments about Passover or their version of the Lord's Supper was that they took in the wilderness. By Exodus 34, we see a team of 70 elders that have been selected as the governing body of Israel under the leadership of Moses. There was no way that Moses could give counsel. There's no way that Moses could help with the well-being and care for and nurture over two million people. And so he needed some under leaders. He needed some other leaders to help him do that. So in Numbers chapter 11, we read of God's specific call of this body of leaders to serve with Moses in the wilderness. Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders. Not hoping that they'll be leaders. No, you bring me some elders who are known as leaders and officials among the people and have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. Now, I highlighted that. That's not highlighted in the scriptures. And I highlight it because I think we humans will admit we need someone to stand with us, don't we? I do. It is clear from these verses and others that elders had a significant place in the leadership early on in God's story for doing just that, for standing with the people. This happened including both their time in exile and in their return from exile to reestablish the temple and the kingdom again in Jerusalem through Ezra and Nehemiah. So, I don't think it should come as any surprise at all that when Jesus launches his church, he continues to see the value of faithful older men to play a significant role in the protection and the care and the nurturing and the growing of, listen to me, his disciples. For the first time we become aware of their presence in the early church of these elders is in regards to a famine that had struck. Now this famine was actually in process when Jesus was still alive. But a specific group of people are called together to help with this particular famine. We're going to talk about them a little bit later. They're called deacons. But here's what I want to talk about in reference to this particular moment. It's these elders that are responsible for receiving contributions that come from all these newbie churches that were growing up around Jerusalem who were giving money to help the hungry with that family. They were to receive it. And so here's where that reference comes from in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. They sent their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul to the church in Jerusalem. And that's the reason I... I want to underscore this particular point because it's the very first time that it's mentioned in, in light of Jesus' church where elders are needed. Now, we're not told how those elders were chosen, but we, we 
anticipate and we expect that it was the 12 apostles who chose them. Rubel Shelley writes, In the earliest days of the first church in Jerusalem, everything seems to have presumed the personal leadership of the 12 apostles. And yet that church grew so large, so rapidly, that they had to be flexible enough to evolve some expanded leadership positions, a la deacons and elders that come a little bit later. Now we're going to see the results of this when Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in the cities of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And here's what's written in Acts 14 and verse 23 about that. It's Paul and Barnabas who appointed those elders for them in every church, and they did so with prayer and fasting, committing them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, I know for a lot of you, history is not that big a deal for you, but this really is important because I wanted to underscore this isn't just something that we're making up here as we go along on the fly. This is something that's been a part of God's story since he literally began loving people and growing people up to know him. And he's chosen to do that also, not just with his people from Israel, but also with us, his church. Dr. Luke is going to further write, and some of you may not know this, but the book of Acts is this incredible book by a doctor who loved Jesus so much, he wanted a buddy of his by the name of Theophilus to understand what this wave of excitement was about called the way, called the church. And so he writes the book of Acts. And in it he talks about a couple of guys by the name of Paul and Barnabas who collected some of the Christian brothers and sisters there to go talk to some elders in Jerusalem when there was a first church fuss. <laughs> and yes, they had church fusses back even in the first century. The text says here in Acts chapter 15 and verse 2, So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders there about, it says, this question. Well, this question was about, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved? That was the toughie for the moment in the first century. And it was a big one. Well, salvation hinging on what people do, or did it hinge on what Christ did? And it started right there in the first century with that particular question. And there was quite the debate over it. But when they had had that debate, when they had discussed and when they had prayed, and the Holy Spirit had given them the direction, Acts 16 and verse 4 says this, Then Paul and Barnabas traveled back town to town, and they delivered that decision reached by those apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Now, I know that's lengthy for some of us, but are you beginning to catch a picture that elders have a significant role in the church's leadership? Now, the process of selecting elders who would be used by God to make and grow disciples of Jesus continued even without the apostles being present. The apostle Paul instructs Titus, a preacher, whom Paul mentored to teach and preach specifically in the cities of Crete and some other surrounding towns. Here's what he said to Mr. Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as directed. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. In Titus' day, the church wasn't made up of 31 flavors like we experience now. We got all kinds of church names in different places. That didn't happen. That wasn't in existence yet in Paul's day. There was one church in each town and he was calling elders to be over each one of those churches. And Titus was recognized as the person given responsibility to select those elders. Now, elder appointment by preachers and evangelists, listen to me clearly, is not the process we are following today. 
And I want you to know this. I, for one, am really thrilled about that. I can barely choose what socks to wear with my pants, let alone what elder needs to be chosen to lead a church for the next decade or maybe two. And I mean that sincerely. I love leading the process. I love being a part of the process. But I don't want to own it. I don't. The important reason involves the truth. God never, listen to me, mandates how elders are to be selected. I'm going to use that word carefully. God never mandates how leaders in the church are to be selected. Now, we have some examples of it. First of all, starting with the casting of lots whenever we had to replace Judas. Remember that? That's how, and I guess an apostle is kind of an important leader, huh? That's how he was chosen to be placed into leadership. We see Titus being called by Paul to appoint. We see Paul and Barnabas to, to appoint leaders. But there's nothing mandated, listen to me clearly, in the New Testament about how we do that. It's my personal opinion. The reason why is because God's more concerned with the person to be selected than he is the procedure to be followed. Or maybe say it better this way. When it comes to elder selection, the character of the man is more significant than the correctness of the plan. The character of the man is more significant than the correctness of the plan. Now, I can say that by one reason. Because God himself underscores twice. <laughs> he repeats himself twice in Scripture about how important the character of the man is. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And I'm, I don't beg you to do a lot, but I'm begging you, go over those chapters, please. While we're talking about elders, while we're studying about them, while we're praying about them, you go over those character traits of a man's life to become familiar with who God expects in a leader. We get a chance to choose a procedure. We get a chance to choose a lot of things. We get a chance to choose church buildings. God said, go and make disciples of all nations, and he's given us a lot of leeway about how to do that. Do we do it through Bible classes, community groups, home groups? He didn't say how, he just said, go do that. Because we live under a new covenant, not the covenant of law. And if you want to know how how-to looks, go read Genesis through Malachi. Oh, my goodness. How-tos for everything. Everything. Not so much from Matthew, to Reve uh, Matthew through Revelation. Because God's not so much concerned with the how, but the who. I'm not saying completely. But he really is concerned about the who. So where do we get our procedure that we're using from the Bible? Well, it comes from Acts chapter 6. That's why I had you turn there. And I said one of the earliest problems that the Scripture records the church faced had to do with the famine. I'm coming back to that now. The famine really was a difficult, difficult time for not just the Hebrew people, but for the people of the way as they got started in life. And the first really problem, it wasn't really a fuss, but maybe it was a little bit. Well, some of the Grecian widows thought that in the daily distribution of the food, they weren't getting their fair share. That was a tough time. It's a tough problem. Here's what the scripture says about that. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hellenistic, the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, so you choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn the responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. 
and also Philip, and Procurus, and Acanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert from Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now some of you might be asking, well, what in the world's a deacon? A deacon simply is a capable Christ-like servant usually selected to take care of a specific task or be put over a specific area of ministry. They are not asked to serve in the oversight of the entire church. They're asked to see and to take care of <clears throat> and to nurture the specific oversight of ministry areas in a church. Now that's all I have time to say about deacons and some of you are thrilled about that. Now while this text in Acts 6 is traditionally attributed to the selection of deacons, our leadership sees it as applying to any servant, hear me, any servant in any ministry position. So we're starting here. We're beginning here. And if you don't see in these men the life of Christ, we don't want to go anywhere else. We don't want to lean that to just a few group of men called the elders or just the preacher. We want to see if you see the life of Christ in some specific men. We want to lead deeper this church into Christ. So we're starting here in Acts chapter 6. Now the process mentioned here gives us a great basis, I think, to direct our minds for this entire process we're calling elder selection. Let me hit the pause button here and go back to Rudosa where I once preached for a while. Gail and I had been remarried for about a year and I still had sportsman's taxidermy when our elders there invited me to return as their minister. I didn't think that was going to be possible. We were actually about to say yes to taking a position in Las Cruces, New Mexico when they came and talked to us about coming back. About that time, a book on leadership that was highly touted was called Flight of the Buffalo. Why in the world would I talk to us about that? Because this book sought to make the point that effective organizations are the ones that give up command and control as a model of leadership and opt for a more flexible, shared, and empowering model of leadership. And it just so happens that was coming out at the time that I was being invited back under really what was a new eldership. While I was out of preaching for a while, the only selection of elders that happened with a congregation doing it took place. And so I was stepping literally back into an eldership I had never served under. We looked at this book to talk about it and to see if this applied to how we wanted to lead as a church. In it, James Belasco and Ralph Sayer reflect on the decimation of the buffalo in this country as an example of organizations who are similarly destined to become extinct. I'm just curious, how many of you remember that we were responsible for almost bringing the buffalo to the brink of extinction? How many remember that? Okay. I thought you remembered your history pretty well. How could that happen? Listen to me. It was easy because a distinctive way a buffalo herd operates is this. Buffaloes have a, a single leader. So typically a hunter would watch a herd for a day or so, spot the lead animal, move in and kill it, and the deadly result would be the rest of the herd would simply stand there and be picked off one after the other after the other, waiting for their leader to tell them what their next move was. While they stood there and were slaughtered, at least in an image, James Velasco writes, we observe that many businesses have failed because of the same principle. That a single visionary, a single planner, or a single leader could bring about the demise of an entire organization. 
that when he drops dead or loses his vision or doesn't spot changes in the market anymore, that company fails and goes belly up. I'm curious, church, does that sound like any church you know of? I know of far too many where that's true. One of the reasons the gates of hell, I believe, has not prevailed against Jesus' church is because the apostles, the apostles realized this was not their church. It was his church. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, this is more than just a metaphor. This is reality. The church is the body of Christ, but Christ is its head. He, Jesus, is the body, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Not supremacy, but the supremacy. There's one pattern that the apostles learned firsthand is to watch their leader equip them to be leaders. I think that's amazing. So the apostles weren't power hungry. Throughout the book of Acts, we watch them over and over relinquish ministry after ministry over which they held original authority to. The apostles weren't insecure. They weren't ignorant because they knew who the true shepherd was, who the true leader was. And they were just under shepherds. And so they knew that they could release other areas of ministry that others might even be better at than themselves. They understood clearly that they were supposed to attend to the primary calling of teaching the word of God, and so they did. And as important as ministry to the widows of the Jerusalem was, and it was important, it simply wasn't their personal calling, and so they relinquished that role to qualified people. Now again, from the flight of the buffalo, its authors mirror another leadership principle. This is the one that I wanted to leave as a picture in your mind as we head into the further decision on who we're going to call as men of elders. I think it also comes out of Acts 6, that it comes out of their message to a business world when they wrote their book. The author says, one day I got it. What I really wanted in my business was a group of responsible, interdependent workers similar to a flock of geese instead of a herd of buffalo. I could see the geese flying in their V formation, the leadership changing frequently with different geese taking the lead. I saw every goose being responsible for getting itself to wherever the gaggle was going changing roles whenever necessary, alternating as a leader, a follower, or a scout. And when the task changed, the geese would be responsible for changing even the structure of the group to accommodate the task. Then he writes, I saw clearly the biggest obstacle to success was my picture of a loyal herd of buffalo waiting for me, the leader, to tell them what to do. So I had to change the picture to become a different kind of leader is what I had to do so that everyone could become a leader. Church, that's the picture. That's the goal of this eldership. That's the goal of this leadership, to refuse to allow this herd to be dependent on any one leader, but rather raise up a collective force of leaders who will train leaders to win this world for Christ. That's who you have serving right now. Which is why never once will you find in Scripture, either by appointment or by church-wide selection or however they were selected, One elder. You won't find one shepherd. You won't find one overseer over a church. No. It's always a plurality of those geese flying together, leading together, working together, doing whatever it takes to get them from point A to point B, from here to there as a church. Next Sunday, I hope to take us through the life markers that you're going to need for looking at potential elders by actually looking at Probably 1 Timothy 3, I haven't made up my mind. They're both the same, close. 
but I think it's probably going to be 1 Timothy 3. Let me finish this morning very quickly with three essential qualities that uh, are listed right here in Acts chapter 6 that you need to be considering. That's baseline for any leader to serve in this church. The first one is this. A leader must be of good reputation. A leader must be of good reputation. The authority to lead others in spiritual matters does not flow from titles. It doesn't flow from positions. You know this, but from a life that's easily accepted and willingly respected. The most significant leaders in your life, I can guarantee you, are people that, it wasn't because of a degree or the number of books they read or the titles that they wore that they impacted or influenced your life. No. You just wanted to follow them. You didn't just admire them. You wanted to be like them. And isn't it true in almost any group, those leaders rise to the top, even the quiet ones. Before long, if you give it enough time, you get to know them. Even the quiet leaders shine because of who they are. And they're easily accepted and widely respected. That's what you could say about Jesus. Even among sinners, that's what you could say about the apostles. Even among those in the world. Hopefully that's what you could say about us as a church, but especially leaders of this church. There's no way in the world we want to present someone as an elder who a significant piece of us would say, are you kidding me? Him? No way! Before we start, because he's got to be of good reputation. He's got to be someone that's easily accepted and readily respected. And that's where we start. Number two, spiritual leaders are to be full of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 through 23, Paul clearly lays out some of the traits of any person that is Spirit-led, Spirit-filled. Love like Jesus loves. Joy like Jesus has joy. Peace, patience, kindness, and gentleness. They're all there. And again, we're not talking the perfect guy. But we are talking a guy who's in progress of, of dying to self and making room for more and more of the Spirit. And you can see it. It shows in his life. Now, while it's true that the Holy Spirit of God makes his home in every single one of us, and he does, some people are further along in allowing that Spirit to have sovereignty in their lives. And you've seen that. You can see it in them. The evidence of that surrender are life traits of generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, the rest of those fruits of the Spirit. And oh my, can I just encourage you this? We need some elders, some leaders who have some self-control and are gentle with it. I heard about a church committee where a brother said, all right, here's the vote as follows. Joe, Ruth, David, Sid, Marcia, they're all for the proposal. Me and God are against it. Now that's a spirit, but that's not the Holy Spirit. That's a divisive spirit. That's an arrogant spirit. That's a self-centered spirit. We're looking for spirit-led men to lead us. Number three, we're looking for men full of wisdom. That's kind of a hard to wrap your mind around the word. Actually, it's just simply the ability to choose well. And it takes time to develop that choice-making process, unless, like Solomon, you're just given it by God. But for most of us, it takes years to acquire, or based in Hebrew, remember the word for leader, elder, beard? Minimally, you've got to be old enough probably to grow a beard to be an elder. You've got to have some time, some choice-making practice under your belt to do that well. Because wisdom, I think, is just simply sanctified common sense, Honestly. It's the ability to avoid panic in a crisis, to dig for and focus on good information, 
to discover through prayer and spiritual discernment a course to follow that honors the Lord. One of the obvious evidence of wisdom in a man's life, in church leadership anyways, is not only his personal discernment, but understanding that my task as a leader is to teach and to raise up other leaders with such wisdom. Church, we need shepherds who know that their task is to create a family culture and a leadership culture that's going to outlast them. So look for that. Another evidence of wisdom is the ability to hear others, listen to me, to hear others and build consensus among people. Too often it works out that people who think that they're people of vision all of a sudden come up with a vision and simultaneously close their ears to anybody else's. James says this in chapter 3 and verse 17, but the wisdom from above, I'll tell you, is first pure and it's peaceable and it's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy. Good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. We need elders with wisdom. Now you may be thinking, Jimmy, what you've just walked us through is a description of nothing more than the foundation of any person's life in this room. It's what we're all expected to be. And I'm going, yeah, if you heard that, you're right. Church leaders are simply men and women who are a little further along in the journey to become like Jesus. That's all they are. And it's made obvious by their character, their reputation, and their life skills. A life that is strong enough in character to stand up to scrutiny because it's going to come. And a life that's still vibrant enough even after that scrutiny to want to be imitated by the rest of us. When I was just a baby preacher, the Tulsa Soul Winning Workshop, Rubel Shelley said, my personal definition of a leader is someone who's going somewhere with such confidence and clarity that others fall in behind. I like that. So you guys be on the lookout. For one of the men in our church who is going somewhere with such confidence and clarity that you want to fall in behind him. Now that can be true of someone who's 60 years old, but it can also be true of someone who's six. A few months ago, I introduced you to a young lady by the name of Ruby Bridges. Many of us, like myself, became acquainted with her first in a video. When Ruby was only six years old, she was the first black student ever at an all-white William France public school in New Orleans in 1960. Norman Rockwell himself immortalized this young girl in a famous painting that we, he calls The Problem We All Live With. It hangs today still in the White House. It shows Ruby being escorted to class by federal marshals there in the painting. You can't see the hostile crowds who were calling her names and shouting death threats, but they're there. You can see some of the evidence by what's splattered on the wall, what's written on the wall. Each day of her first grade year, as we saw, she went to class where there was only a teacher in Ruby. You see, the parents of white children would not permit them to be in class with her. How in the world could a child endure that kind of hatred? Day after day after day. How could she sleep at night? How could she eat? How could she learn? Because she was a leader. Here's what she wrote. She was asked, how could you do this? And she responded, I try to get there and I figure if I do, then other kids might say they're willing to try and go too. She said, and pretty soon it could be better for all of us here. Wow, maybe I should have just started and stopped right there. That's what a leader is. Someone who's willing to go there first, then help the rest of us get there too. And maybe, just maybe, it'll be better for us there as well. 
That's the kind of humble, courageous, loving leadership we're looking for in leaders for this church. Leaders who have a reputation for being spirit-surrendered, being wise, men of good reputation, obedient, courageous, faithful. Places maybe some of us haven't arrived yet, but all we'd like to go if there was just somebody to lead us there and whose presence in our lives would inspire us to get there. That's what we're calling an elder. Lord, help us as we think, reflect, pray, fast for these men and their wives to help lead us to places we haven't been yet. Not as travel agents handing out brochures to places they've never been, but places that they've been and we can see it in their lives, the, the marks of where they've been on them. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be at this place. Thank you that we know that there are among us right now. We're not just speaking this into the wind. We know there are men capable of stepping on board, at least mentally for the next three years with us, and giving us their best to help us become your best. And so I'm asking specifically, would you continue to stir in their hearts, even now as they're wrestling with, should I or shouldn't I, and I don't know. If this is your intention for them, I'm asking, Holy Spirit, would you trump every excuse and every question they have? And would you draw them to the desire to be an elder for this church? And give us eyes to see who they are. In the name of Jesus and all the church said. Jesus Christ led to a place you couldn't go. Freedom from sin and the ability to be everything God ever dreamed for you. And if you want to get in line and follow him as leader of all leaders in your life, we're going to ask you, would you want to come down and, and die? We'll bury you in baptism back here. Got some clothes ready for you. The water's ready. We'd love to bury you in baptism so that you could be raised to walk in a brand new life. All you need to be believe is this. I think he's the, no, I know he's the son of God. And I know that God raised him from the dead. And I trust that preacher up there when he tells me that when I commit to him and rely upon everything he's done, I've done everything I need to do. If I put my faith and trust in him, he's promised that he would put his life in me. So let's bury that old life, all right, so that we can see the Spirit come live inside you while we stand and while we sing.